So the thing I liked most about issue number zero of Mage the Hero Denied was, well, it's toss-up. The close-up on Kevin Matchstick's face on page five, that's just some great storytelling with the look on his face. And the pebble. There is a lot going on with that little pebble. So, um, love it, hate it. What was your favorite or, you know, least favorite part of the issue? Welcome to The Mage, the Hero Described podcast. And this is a show for fans of Matt Wagner's Mage, and currently I'll be reviewing Mage 3, The Hero Denied. I'm Kevin, and in this episode, we'll also discuss a little bit of the background story from the first two series for new readers who may be unfamiliar with Mage, the Hero Discovered, and the Hero Defined. Now, since Mage is both a heroic adventure and Matt Wagner's fictionalized autobiography, one part of reading Mage that really flourished with uh, the Hero Defined, Mage 2, was discovering Easter eggs that referenced either events or people in his life, both personal and professional. So expect that these reviews will cover both the main primary storyline, artwork, subtext observations, and if everything goes well with the pod, it's likely that there will be an episode dedicated to Mage as an autobiography, maybe a deeper dive. There will certainly be comments about autobiographical elements or things that look like they're that throughout the reviews. Since Mage 3 is the third series in a trilogy, characters and events in The Hero Discovered and The Hero Defined will be referenced. So this is your spoiler warning for the issue being reviewed and for any issue preceding it. All of Series 1, all of Series 2, Discovered and Defined, the two previous interludes, everything. Before I review an issue... I'm going to do my best to steer clear of internet chatter and reviews. But after the issue review has been recorded, as we, we, we get into future episodes, hopefully there will be listener feedback to add in, and probably even a media segment to reference notable insights from published reviews, internet discussions, interviews, you name it. But I'm going to try to go into each issue review as cold or blind as possible to kind of keep my, myself influence-free. Now, for readers who are new to Mage and may not have had a chance to collect or read the first two series yet, here's kind of a brief recap. I'm going to keep this as high level as possible, gloss over a lot of details to respect the patience of longtime fans who know these series inside and out. So I'm going to skip a lot of themes and details, just cover the broad strokes of the story, eh, broad strokes of the story, and some important key plot points that appear to inform the overall trilogy, things that might be expected to show up in The Hero Denied, or influence things in The Hero Denied. That said, each series is 15 to 16 issues long, so a brief recap is somewhat optimistic. There is no substitute for reading the comics, though. You can find re-releases of both Hero Discovered and Hero Defined in collected editions on Amazon, and so here we go. In Mage... The hero discovered, we meet Kevin Matchstick. He's a cynical young guy who encounters early on an enigmatic figure and quickly finds himself caught up in a battle between good and evil. And as the story progresses, even while Kevin remains 
doubtful and resistant to everything going on around him. He's joined by a small group who aid him in this essentially unwanted battle. Aside from the, the mysterious figure who reveals himself to be named Mirth, a world mage, the mage of the title, Kevin is also joined by Edsel, a bat-wielding young lady who takes her name from her car, and Sean Knight, who in his own way is more than he appears at first. Let's just leave it at that. Mirth acts as Kevin's guide throughout this journey, informing him that it is his role to find and protect the Fisher King, who is being sought by the story's villains, an incarnation of evil named the Umbra Sprite and his five deadly sons, the Grackleflints. And they're all pale, bald, male, kind of featureless figures with spurs on their elbows, and they're very dangerous. And the Fisher King comes from Arthurian myth. The Fisher King was the last guardian, if I remember correctly, is the last guardian of the Holy Grail. And uh, in this case, the Ember Sprite and his sons are seeking the Fisher King to, to destroy him. There's references made, I think, of we need your blood. So they're clearly have nefarious aims for him. By the end of the issue, Kevin Matchstick has come to accept his role as a hero and is ultimately revealed to be a modern incarnation of King Arthur, the Pendragon. So Arthur Pendragon, and that gets shorthanded to the Pendragon. And he has come into possession of his weapon Excalibur in its current form of a magic glowing bat. Throughout the comic, Kevin is constantly wearing a black t-shirt emblazoned with his signature Shazam-style lightning bolt, and he seems to have an endless supply of these. I haven't read the first series for a while, but I think there's even there's even a comment about this during a post-battle post -battle change of clothes. In the uh, story's conclusion, our team of heroes takes to the Umbra Sprite's headquarters uh, to do battle. And ultimately, the big bad, the Umbra Sprite, is found already dead uh, shortly before the lair, a very tall building, a, cas a casino, collapses. Uh, Kevin never actually faces him in battle. As the first series progresses, so does Matt Wagner's artistic skill, his approach to characters, dialogue, so forth. They become more detailed, and to steal a word from the title of the second series, they become more defined. Later in the series, or midway through the series, the addition of Sam Keith inking the comic really shines with uh, Matt Wagner's use of airbrushed colors. Now, Shortly after The Hero Discovered concluded, and I should mention a small plot point that plays into what happens in, in Mage 2 moving on. Clearly, Mage takes place in Philadelphia. One of the last uh, shots of the series appears to be a part of a newspaper front page from Philadelphia Inquirer or, or some paper such as that. And there's a mention of the collapse of the, of the villain's stronghold and strange phenomena being mentioned. So there's this implication that with the collapse of the villain's headquarters, all sorts of nasty creatures and monsters have been let loose out into the world. Shortly after the hero discovered concluded, in the back pages of Matt Wagner's other famed comic, Grendel, an unexpected mage short story, if you will, appeared. It was titled Interlude. And in this short story, Kevin Matchstick is a lone wandering hero who comes to the aid of a young lady who is under attack by a monster named a Kelpie. 
And this is happening near a uh, pool or a fountain featuring a huge statue, and it looks like Poseidon's chariot drawn by horses. Now, the Kelpie is a Scottish shape-shifting water spirit. It's naturally in the shape of a horse, but it's able to take on human form. And by the end of the interlude, Kevin Matchstick has defeated the Kelpie and continues on his way. So it's just a short little battle. And some of the panels in this are so good. The Kelpie in human form, kissing his female victim when she's under his glamour, first getting together with him in a human form, un unaware of his uh, demonic or spirit nature. He's got a mohawk, and it's like this tightly cropped horse's mane. And in the background, almost as a hint to his true nature, is mirrored one of the nearby horse's heads on the fountain statue. So the two of them both looking the same direction, and it's a little bit of neat visual foreshadowing of his true nature. I'll, I'll see if I can post that and a few other images that highlight some of the things I've mentioned earlier that might be images of note, and you'll find those on the website. By the way, there is this amazing steel sculpture of two Kelpies at a place called Helix Park in Scotland. Just randomly came across this while I was making sure I had my, my facts straight about Kelpies, and... Um, it's just remarkable. They're about 98, almost 100 feet tall. They're kind of jaw-dropping. So again, you'll find a link to the Kelpie's statue or installation, I guess you could say, in the pod notes or on the website. Go to Either go to Facebook and search for Mage, the Hero Described podcast, or um, just setting up right now, magethehero-described.com. You can go to uh, one or other of those places and you'll probably find it there. Now, the interlude I mentioned earlier takes place next to this really distinctive-looking fountain, and I believe I found a photo of a fountain in Canada that appears to be the inspiration for that shown in the comic. The, the victim and her um, assailant, the Kelpie, both are speaking French, so possibly this is meant to take place in Montreal. That would make sense, given the autobiographical nature of Mage. And Matt Wagner, I believe, spent some time up in Canada. Yeah, possibly not. It's been over a decade. If anybody can shed some light on that, or knows if the fountain depicted in the interlude is based on a real fountain, drop me a line. Again, look for an image of this posted on the website at the time that this is live, or a little bit later. The artwork really stands out in this interlude from the rest of the series. Stylistically, it appears to be kind of a next step from issue 15 of The Hero Discovered. We see here a bare-faced Kevin Matchstick. I believe this was the first time that we uh, see him wearing those, those red Converse high tops. Again, going back through past issues, I haven't had a chance to delve back into The Hero Discovered as deeply as I would like to, but I remember shortly after reading this interlude, Gosh, I was probably 18 years old. I rushed out, got my first pair of chucks, red high tops, and had a fabric, uh, had a white fabric paint pen or something like that, and threw some mage bolts on the side of those suckers, and I was walking on clouds. Anyways, so the artwork is really great in this. It's a visual treat. There's been a lot of discussion about the change in Matt's art from mage to mage 2, and while I respect uh, Matt Wagner's growth, decisions, direction at an as an artist. This is a particular phase in his development that I could just look at this particular style all day. So after this interlude, despite press and t-shirts announcing the Mage 2 hero defined coming soon, legal and possibly inspirational delays put off publication for about 10 years. And then, to much fanfare, issue zero of The Hero Defined was published. I think there was even a, uh, a 3D 
a 3D issue of it that came with glasses. It was the 90s, folks. So in this second interlude, Kevin Matchstick is in the American Southwest, and he encounters another hero, another modern incarnation of a past mythic figure going by the name of Joe Fat. Now, Joe Fat has been called a combination of Hiawatha and uh, Native American trickster gods such as Coyote. His blue shirt features a lightning bolt reminiscent of the Flash, and like the Flash, he is fast. The two heroes are both on the trail of the monster, or as they will be referred to in Mage 2, a nasty. They encounter and defeat a Manitou, and then head off to lunch, as you do. Now, in Mage 2, Kevin lets us know early on that he and Mirth, the world mage, have gone separate ways. Mirth had let Kevin know that he will encounter another mage, and Kevin is basically going from place to place on the nasty hunt, taking out monsters where he finds them, where he sniffs them out, and wondering when this second mage will appear, kind of randomly kicking around, waiting to run into this second mage. Early on in the series, right off the bat, issue one or two, Kevin joins forces with, well, he continues to join forces with Joe Fat, who he encountered in issue zero, and they're joined at the end of issue one, beginning of issue two, by Kirby Hero, another modern heroic incarnation. And in this case, essentially Hercules. He, much as Kevin is the Pendragon, Kirby Hero is the Olympian, and his symbol, his symbol is evocative of the Superman S-shield with a lion's head. And the three together save an old man from some nasties, some harpies, and the easily confused, forgetful elder going by the name of Wally Utt claims to be Kevin's second mage. But every time he attempts to use magic to prove his identity, something goes awry, and the three quickly dismiss him as a joke. The heroes are drawn northward, ultimately, eventually, to Canada, where a convergence of nasty activity has also attracted a growing collection of modern heroes. Now, at this point, Kevin Matchstick is faced with challenges and conflicts with both nasties and with heroic peers, as he really spends a lot of this series attempting to fulfill what he sees as his role as the leader. He is King Arthur. He is trying to be the king. And the story alternates also between our heroes and an unnamed figure that is referred to, that we refer to as the Pale Encanter. I don't remember if that's actually in the series or was something that was used by fans as a way to refer to him or maybe even Matt himself during the series publication. But this Pale Encanter is watching them and scheming and specifically planning ill for Kevin Matchstick. So as the story comes to a close, uh, Excalibur the Bat is destroyed, the trio of heroes is broken, going their separate ways, and Wally Utt reveals himself to be another manifestation of mirth. And he gives Kevin some lessons regarding pride, his heroic identity, the source of his power, and among other things, that he was using the bat as a crutch. That it was not his power. He is the power. And the bat was a powerful tool and expression of that power but it wasn't the power. And he also reminds Kevin that in his journeys, he has completely forgotten his main mission, his main cause, which is to seek the Fisher King. Now, along these journeys, as, as these heroic events are going on also, there's a sideline story going on that leads to Kevin meeting who is to be the love of his life, a witch by the name of Magda. 
and we spend a, we spend some time exploring that. And there's some interesting dynamics and themes that we can discuss later. But that goes on, and that that lends some tension to his uh, influence and his heroic trio, his uh, his boys club. Now, at the time that the heroes go into this big culminating battle against the Pale Encounter, he's revealed to be the lone surviving Grackleflint, Emil, from the first series, who is ultimately then destroyed by his thought-to-be-dead father, the Umbra Sprite. The Umbra Sprite returns, and drunk on the seeming destruction of his son, the Umbra Sprite turns into this flood of viscous black oil, and Kevin and Wally Ut are separated, and ultimately Kevin escapes to the real world, away from this heroic environment where these battles have been going on. He returns back to the real world where he finds that months have passed, and he finds Magda waiting for him, following some premonitions or some signs that told her, maybe some dreams that told her that uh, he would be there. And the series closes with Kevin essentially proposing to her, makeshift ring, Bended knee and all. As in Mage, where Kevin only battles the Grackleflints, the Umbra Sprite's children, and other monsters, but never the Umbra Sprite, in Mage 2, Kevin Matchstick never actually battles the Pale Encounter, the big bad of this series. Only his offspring and other monsters, creatures, etc. So technically speaking, by the time we get to the end of Mage 2, Kevin Matchstick hasn't done battle at all with the actual the source of evil, only their army, so to speak, only their creatures. So after a length of about an 18-year wait, we get the launch of Mage 3, the hero denied. And if nothing else, I'm sure Matt is glad that he will never again have to answer the question, when is Mage 3 coming? On to the third interlude. First of all, the cover. Issue 0 of Hero Defined, Mage 2 featured just the lightning symbol from Kevin's shirt. Here we see the shirt itself. For Mage 2 coming out 10 years after Hero discovered, something like that made sense. It was a strong announcement of the series returning, and it's an iconic symbol. You can't necessarily do that a second time. So this is a neat way to do that again, to put that, that uh, iconic lightning bolt on the black t-shirt front and center. But here we just see the shirt itself, and I was really puzzled by this the first time I saw it. I mean, it looked cool, but I really didn't know what to make of it. It was kind of rumbled, it looked like it had been tossed on the ground, and for decades now, I, and no doubt many others, have been wondering, just what does the hero denied mean? What will the hero be denied? What ill fate might ultimately befall Kevin Matchstick to warrant being denied? But a recent comment by Matt Wagner in an interview seems to have turned this way of approaching that subtitle uh, or that title on its head. So speaking about Kevin's attitude after the events of Mage 2, he said, Disheartened and even more confused about his path, he retreated from that world of magic and monsters and has since tried to rebuild a normal life with his true love, Magda. Now, in some ways... It seems to me that this mirrors his denial of his heroic identity, th identity throughout Mage 1. And as that series shows, that didn't go very well. Y you can deny it, you can deny it, you can deny it, but it's going to keep coming and knocking on your door over and over again. But that shirt, and I read that, and all of a sudden, looking at that title and that shirt tossed on the ground, it really 
I think gave a, gives a strong hint about what we're about to see in this issue might just be the last straw. What happens that leads Kevin Magistic to again turn his back on the hero and deny that part of his destiny? At least that's my take. I'll revisit that when we get to the end of the issue. According to Matt, this story takes place two years after Hero Defined, and issue one will take place roughly ten years after the events in Hero Defined. So this issue opens in an urban setting, somewhat reminiscent of the first battle scene in Mage 2. Broken windows, abandoned buildings, keep-out signs, and Kevin is being addressed by someone off-panel. Someone who recognizes him, almost. He calls him Snapdragon, Dragonfly, and then finally Kevin corrects him and just says, Pendragon. And much in the way that the second interlude opens with Kevin meeting Joe Fat two heroes on the hunt for the same game, who ultimately join to do battle against that nasty. Kevin meets a young upcoming hero, goes by the name The Steez. And The Steez clearly sees Kevin as, if not a has-been, certainly a once-was. This is referenced repeatedly in a variety of ways. In the first instance, when The Steez refers to the two of them as, uh, quote, the last generation and the fresh. And in another case, he outright calls Kevin old-timer. So wherein the hero defined, we saw multiple heroes with mythic heroic avatars. The Steez quickly lets us know that the current batch of heroes really doesn't care about the past or their possible avatars at all. We don't play that old-timey name game stuff, he says. All that reliving-the-past shit. That old saying, when I read that, that old saying occurred to me. Those who don't learn from the past are doomed to repeat it. But anyway, going by the rules or the norms set up in Mage 2, the Steez, he sure looks like he's meant to represent either a specific comic creator, comic publisher, or who knows, maybe nothing at all. Maybe those old rules from Mage 2 that old-timey name game stuff doesn't apply, and this is a way of letting us, uh, the reader, know that. But if anyone has any guesses or ideas about the Steez's avatar or real-world inspiration, I- I'd love to hear it. And opinions and, you know, whatever your observations are about, uh, about this issue or mage in general. So whoever he is, he is itching for a fight. The Steez is self-obsessed and focused on growing his score, his count of nasties defeated. It's like he's looking to get a video game high score. And there seems to be some possible, I don't know, comic industry commentary going on here when the Steez claims that in the heroing game now, what matters is image and style. It doesn't take long to get into some action. Shortly after this two pages of introduction, a hive of creepy-looking creatures that Kevin identifies as bukas pretty much jumped the steez as Kevin just stands by. And in his pumped-up high tops, chunky jacket, and baseball hat, the steez 
powers uh, powers up. And first he turns on his music. He's got this Walkman cassette player. The Steez is like some skate jock riding a red power arc through half pipes, carving swipes, red music notes trailing from his earbuds the whole time. And all the while he is narrating his actions. I mean, he's like some self-aggrandizing Peter Parker live casting, going for celebrity. In stark contrast to where Peter Parker would set up his camera to take photos of him as Spider-Man so he could sell them to make a living. This is, I felt like I was watching somebody narrating a, uh, narrating a live cast. If nothing else, the guy is really into himself. I mean, supers talking while they fight is nothing new, but usually they're talking to other heroes. You get that, you know, battle banter or the bad guys they are fighting. Sometimes you'll get the, to go back to, you know, to Spidey, you'll get maybe the, the fourth wall kind of comments that aren't to anybody in particular, but certainly not self-narrating to this degree. And Kevin just watches this, looking somewhat amused. And I said at, at the start of this pod, just check out that panel on page five. That's a, the look on his face is just great. And then the Steez gets jumped by about, and I counted it, had to, about 18 of these nasty little creeps. He gets bit on his leg, and he's looking like he's going down. Again, some great artwork here. Check out the look on his face as, uh, and I think this is important, the earbuds fall out. So once that happens, he really seems to falter. So it's possible that the music is tied to his power. And meanwhile, Kevin is charging a tiny pebble, just a pebble, and he throws it into the fray. And in an electrical burst, this tears through the bukas, ripping them apart and off of the young hero. And we really get to see that, just by that, we get to see that this is a different Kevin Matchstick. In Mage 1, he was largely muscle and more or less invulnerable. Lots of punching and street-level fighting until he claims the bat at the end of the series. And then in Mage 2, he's pretty much reliant on the bat. Here when we see him charging this pebble with this energy and sending it out there, we see a sign that as, as Mirth says in the first series, and Wally Ut later repeats in Hero Defined, the power is you. And Kevin appears to have begun mastering how to channel that power. So we see that pebble let loose with a blast of power, and for a tiny pebble, it is a lot of power. The Steez also seems to be hit by the burst, and like a comic book that's had a bad run and gets another chance, or maybe as just a little bit of a self-referential joke about what's happening with, with Mage 3 as well and what must have been involved with just getting the machine going again. The Steez cries out and says, gotta reboot and relaunch. It's hard for me to tell. Did the energy blast somehow mess with the Steez as well? Or does he just need to recover from the Bukas? Heck, did it somehow give him an extra jolt of energy to use? I'm probably overthinking this, but, you know, so it goes. It just looked like there might have been something going on with that energy and the Steez more than just tearing all those Bukas apart, but I could be reaching. Anyway, we get three great panels after all this chaotic action. The hat that is flown off goes back on. The earbuds get picked up and put in his ears, and the energy on the next page is just explosive as the Steez lets out a yell and slices and dices bukas all over the place. And all, thing considered, all things considered, Young and Self-Satisfied is pretty good at taking these nasties down. Uh, but again, 
totally score obsessed. When he's done, he's talking about how his tally is just sick, and then another kind of thoughtless generational jab at Kevin saying, on my way to legendary status, you know, like you used to be. You know, so you add that into old timer and, and so forth, just there's a big sense of no self-awareness going on here. And as uh, the Steez heads out, narrating his exit in the third person. Now, at this point, we are nine pages into a 12-page issue, and Kevin Matchstick has said 60 words, compared to the Steez, who said around 101 words on just page three alone. And while I was willing to count that to check this dynamic, I wasn't going wasn't gonna to count all the words that he said up until here. But clearly... Steez has been talking up a storm. So that's another great way to contrast these two characters. But now, the role of exposition falls to Kevin, because unlike most comics where friendly square boxes provide that third-party narration, that third-person narration, and tells us everything from, I don't know, past events, what people are thinking, what they're feeling, what is happening, you name it. Unlike those comics, Mage has no third-party narrator. Everything has to be told in dialogue or artwork. And I don't think until I read this issue and I was thinking about this podcast that ever really consciously occurred to me before. But upon consideration, that really gives it this great organic feeling and really brings you into the action. You're never taking that step out to kind of take that omniscient third-person narration point of view. But that does mean that characters have to get expository from time to time. And Kevin now reveals that the Bukas were just a side effect of a bigger, badder, nasty. Oh, and you know what? Something else. The other reason that characters have to do this and say this is there are no thought bubbles in Mage either. Either it happens and you can observe it. Or you just have to wonder. We don't we don't get anybody's uh, we don't get anybody's internal inner uh, dialogue. So then Kevin reveals that these bukas were just a side effect of the bigger, badder, nasty. And he pulls this signpost out of the ground and just lights it up with energy. You know, we already saw him do that with the pebble, but now we're really seeing power. And the concrete setting on the bottom of the post where it was rooted into the ground just blasts off. And it looks very much like a, like a larger version of the destroyed Excalibur the destroyed iconic bat. And he says something that really lets us know what's on his mind as he calls out the nasty that's nearby. Pardon me for quoting, but let's get this shit over with. Because believe me, between having to spend way too much time in dumps like this and a whole new crop of mirror-gazing warriors, sure feels like I've got better things to do with my time. And then the shot of him with this huge stone ogre, and the issue ends. No fight. Nothing. And I think that's the point. In the context, especially, of, of that short comment by Matt Wagner about what the title, The Hero Denied, means, uh, to me, this is Kevin looking around saying, what the fuck? What's the point? Before walking away, is this the straw that broke the camel's back? Just before taking the shirt, the symbol of his heroic essence and his obligation, throwing it on the ground and just walking away, denying the hero. Because in that little brief, that little brief kind of statement, 
He's really addressing the two big things that he's been encountering here. Forget the nasties. He's in this gritty, abandoned urban environment because these nasties, you know, hang out in places that are abandoned by and, uh, you know, abandoned by people, distressed environments. You see them throughout Mage 2. And, uh, you know, I think we got a great example of what a mirror-gazing warrior looks like. So why does he want to spend his time doing this? Now, mind you, this might also be, this is only about a year or two out from the end of Mage 2. Maybe he's been looking for the Fisher King. Maybe he hasn't. You know, maybe he's still just going from place to place on this nasty hunt. Uh, he's certainly probably early in his relationship with Magda, so who knows what that dynamic is. But at this point, I think I think the whole point is, you know, where in Interlude 1, we see a battle. Interlude 2, we see a battle and him meeting another hero and joining a group of warriors. And by the end of Mage 2, you know, he is leaving that group of warriors. He is leaving the boys' club. And now, no battle at all because the battle really isn't the point of this issue. At least, that's my two cents. So, let's talk about the lettering and the art in this issue. Lettering is by Harvey Award nominee Dave Lanfear. Hope I'm saying that right. I did some research on him, and man, he has a resume as long as your arm. I mean, just name the comic company, and he has done something for them. Anyway, it's really, it really adds to the story. Heroes' names are embellished and colored, as they might appear on a comic cover, you know, when we first get the Pendragon and the Stees, oversized fonts, bolding, and, and colors. And I assume the colors are added in by Brendan Wagner, but maybe not. Not exactly sure how coloring works for lettering, but all this, the font choice, the size, the colors, the bolding, italics, whatever, really gives great emphasis to the Stees' dialogue, which, you know, like him, is a bit over the top. And other tricks of the trade for which I no doubt have no idea their proper names. I'll give the dialogue this extra life, whether it's shouting, sound effects, or even that reduction in font size used humorously when the Stees kind of limps off and out of the issue. Now, I'm no artist. My vocabulary to discuss artistic styles, influences, approaches, coloring, and all that might leave more art-educated or observant fans wanting and there is a lot with artwork that I might miss. So before I share my thoughts on the art and the coloring, I really welcome uh, listeners' thoughts on the art, colors, layout, issue, design, you name it, in this issue and future issues. Again, details for sending feedback, opinions, insight, you name it, will be included at the close of the episode. Uh, and if everything works out, you could even call a uh, number and leave a message with your thoughts. And I'll figure out how to include as much listener feedback into the show, either reading emails or including recorded recorded feedback. So, uh, And that goes for whether it has to do with art, whether it has to do with the story, anything mage-related. So the art... To my eye, the art continues to lean more in the direction of Hero Defined than the later issues of Hero Discovered, but I wanted to check my initial reaction uh, and pulled out some issues of Hero Defined, and specifically I looked at issue two of Hero Defined so I could compare this abandoned lot battle to the abandoned warehouse battle in that issue of Hero Defined. And to me, the difference in Matt's actual art from Defined to Denied is subtle. It's there, but I really can't put a finger on it. I I lack the vocabulary. But in both of these, the art, and you know, what strikes me is the art has an organic quality. It's it's less line art, more color and shape. In Hero Denied, at least in this issue, it doesn't seem to go as far 
as the art and the hero defined, where sometimes you would see characters portrayed with an absolute minimum of line art and detail, really aggressively using shape and color to define the characters. And I'm sure that's not going to go away. That's part of Matt's style. But and then there are, of course, those uh, frames that just contain, you know, silhouettes. That's a really great thing that's been that was added to Mage early on. I think first when we get that wonderful scene of Kevin and Mirth in the fairy realms in in magic and, and everything is portrayed with these stark silhouettes against green and then later in mage 2 there are certain moments where you get silhouettes or small kind of detailless figures but used to uh, convey a lot whether it's through their stance uh, whether it's through the body motions and the body language that people are using or just the action so it was uh, it was used to great effect in hero defined and that silhouette style shows up again in hero denied you get a real sense of the Steez's glee as he cuts through some nasties. And in uh, other panels, his surprise and even dismay. There's a panel on page five that I mentioned earlier, tight panel on Kevin's face. But you also get some great face acting or face artwork on the Steez. And the colors by Brendan Wagner, Matt Wagner's son, convey this really dark, dimly lit environment without sacrificing the details of the setting. And because of that line art, color kind of dynamic I was speaking about earlier. It really provides some great contour and depth to the characters, giving you a sense of muscularity and action without relying on the line art. For the longest time as a comic reader, I never really noticed how much of a, of a role, how much of a great role colors play. And one of the things you see here that's wonderful is the use of color to define their faces, even the Steez's leg, like I said, without needing a ton of line art to show every muscle bulge. The red energy path cut by the Steez's power, these highlighted hot spots along the path, and on his feet, those really stand out against the predominantly darker tones in this issue. You get a real sense of heat. So I can't really, I can't wait to see what uh, his work looks like in other settings. So it's really a great combination, and it must have been fun as a team-up between father and son. That's this month's episode of Mage, the Hero Described podcast. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to join me next time when I'll review issue number one. If you have any comments or thoughts about issue zero of Hero Denied or the Mage series overall, you can, well, you can contact me through magetheherodescribed.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, Please rate and review it on iTunes. From what I hear, according to every podcast I ever listen to, it really helps other listeners discover the show. I just got issue one in the mail today, so I'm going to go and read that right now. Thanks for listening, and until the next episode, stay excellent.